I think just following on from what Chris has just said, I would encourage us as we're, as we're looking at the word together. This is always true, but I think particularly this morning, uh, or this afternoon now, um, let's hold on to what we've already heard. I'm very struck by all sorts of stuff that's been brought this morning already. It kind of kicked off as... I don't know who came first, actually, but Dave and and Wendy both brought things about God God being in in everything in our lives. I remember Dave talking about it's all about him. Whatever we're doing, we want to do it to his glory. Wendy talking about living by faith, how Abraham counted the cost, but wasn't kind of put off by the fact that actually these circumstances looked like this is impossible, but he trusted God. And obviously the things that we've just been hearing about, that God wants to do unprecedented things, that, that we may have been going through a, something of a desert time, but God can break in and God can be teaching us even through those times. And the specifics that Esther just brought at the end as well, if those specifics have struck you, don't let go of that. Hold on to them and to the fact that God can break in, God can meet with you today. But we are going to look at Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, We're going to look at the first 19 verses of the chapter. It's a jam-packed passage of scripture. Uh, We're going to look at it as a whole today. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good, and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this 
so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Okay, if you've been with us, this is us approaching the end of the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, Even if you haven't been with us, we are approaching the end of the letter to the Hebrews. But for those who have been with us as we've been going through this, this has been a long journey through this letter. And the writer has built up a great picture. He's labored the point. He has come back again and again to this glorious truth, which could be summarized quite simply as, in Jesus, something far better has come. He's been again and again encouraging his hearers. This is the truth. This is what's good. This is incredible. This is awesome. This is the wonderful truth in Jesus. And he comes to chapter 13, and on the face of it, we see a lot of instructions, lots of exhortations. I've kind of counted them up as they're being set. 11 separate exhortations in this chapter of different ways of, uh, uh, this is what we should do, this is how we should live. And it could be useful, and it would be useful. We could spend months looking through this passage, looking at these one at a time, looking at each of these different exhortations and saying, what does that mean for us? What does that, how do we do that? What's that about? But today I want to look at it as a whole. I want us to see this passage as a whole. And as we do that, to understand, it's so important to see this isn't some kind of add-on to the letter or even somehow a kind of different letter where he's finished with his big glorious picture of Jesus and all of this. Now he's telling, well, do this, do that, do all this, do this, tick, 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 tick. This is what you need to do. Now this is his conclusion. This is where he's led to. This is where it's come to in building this big picture. Here are some things to do. Here are some ways to live. We need to understand why has he come here. Is he suddenly reverting to a list of rules? I've shown you the glorious grace of God, but now do this, do that, do that one, do that, then you'll be okay. No. This is the conclusion to all that he has been saying. This wonderful picture that he's built up. This wonderful glimpse as to what is true. This is the truth. The glorious truth of the gospel. As if you've been here, we've heard all the way through, he speaks in again and again, particularly to their situation. These kind of first century uh, Hebrews who have come to know Jesus, they've been brought up in the, the Jewish traditions. He's been brought up under the old covenant law. They've They've... They followed those kind of, that kind of way of living. They've known God in that way. And now they've come to know Jesus. He's, he's spoken in to that situation again and again. To these Hebrew believers, they've grown up with it. They know the old covenant. They know the law. They know the history of the people of Israel. They'd be familiar with Abraham and Moses and, and King David and the kingdom of God through the Old Testament. The, They'd be familiar with the exile and how the people were taken out of the land. They'd be familiar with the prophets who spoke again and again. All that truth. 
And again and again, he's spoken in uh, here and there all the way through the book. Remember the truth. Remember the truth that something far better has come. Yes, God has been at work from the beginning. But it was always building to this moment when Jesus came. He'd been contrasting. Yeah, you know, God did once say that. Look what it was leading to. And so we've seen it in in recent weeks, if you've been here. Perhaps in chapter 12 and verse 18. You haven't come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. Once the people came to a mountain like that, but now, look, you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to God, the judge of all men, and to Jesus, the Savior. Jesus, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Back in chapter 10, he starts chapter 10 saying, yeah, you know the law, you know about the law, but, but look, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. Look, the law was was good for its purpose, but look, it was pointing towards Jesus coming. Jesus coming and fulfilling the law. Jesus coming and bringing in a new covenant. He's picked up the imagery of, of the temple and before that, the tabernacle, the priests and the sacrifices they offered. And he said, you know what? Do you see, the main point of what we're saying, this is chapter 8, verse 1, is that we do have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? A better one, a greater one, a one who will last forever, a one who is also the king and a prophet. He is prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Not just a man, but God who became man. One who offered a sacrifice that is greater than any of the sacrifices offered before. So he emphasizes it in chapter 8. This is the main point of what we're saying. We do have such a high priest. Even right back at the beginning of the letter, he makes the comparison. Look, God has been at work from the beginning. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But then what? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. He has again and again made this so clear. Look, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one in whom everything is transformed. Jesus is the one that God, Jesus is the plan that God has been planning since the beginning. This is the truth, that something far better has come. He's he's making the point that the Old Testament has always been pointing, always been pointing to something better, pointing to Jesus. And the truth here is that he reflects one last time in, in chapter 13. Even in the midst of a set of seemingly, well, this is what, telling us what to do, isn't it? This is, the, this is exhortations for us. Even right in the middle of that, he draws us back again. This is what's true. This is what's true. Right in the middle of this passage, he brings us to the truth. And as we see this list of exhortation, this list of instructions, this list of, this is the way to live, we must do so remembering why. 
And the why is, this is the truth. This is what is true. And so this all flows out from there. And we see it in, starting in verse 8. We'll start there. We see he draws us back again to the truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He goes on to say, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do. And off the back of that exhortation, he goes here. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own bloods. He paints another picture. A picture that may be quite tricky for us to get hold of. A bit like some of his other pictures through this letter. But for those early Hebrew believers, again... He's lifting their eyes. Oh, you're talking about the sacrificial system. You're talking about the Old Testament. You're talking about the priests. We understand this. But he shows them the truth with this intriguing phrase. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. As he begins here, he's stirring up all kinds of thoughts in their heads. He's reminding them of the Old Testament priests making sacrifices day after day after day at the tabernacle and then at the temple afterwards. This sacrifice, that sacrifice, you have to be, this one needs to be at the right time, this one like that. Sacrifices day after day after day as people brought things and they needed to bring the right sacrifice to the altar day after day. And many of which the priests would have ended up then eating the sacrifice is made and then the, the meat is boiled or it's burnt or whatever it's done. They do all the different things for different sacrifices. And this was the, the, the meat that the priests could eat or the bread that the priests could eat. The different sacrifices and offerings they had to make. They were, some of those were, were the kind of the priest's share that they could eat from. And so this picture he paints is in one sense very clear. Look, something completely different has come. The priests can't eat at this altar. They could eat from the old altar. This is different. Jesus has come. He's changed everything. But at the same time, he kind of leads them on to say, but there's similarities. Because he takes them, also he's made that stark distinction. They can't eat from this altar. But at the same time, sometimes the priests couldn't eat from the altar anyway particularly on the Day of Atonement, this one day in the year when they had to offer this one sacrifice every year, the one day the high priest could go into the most holy place in the temple, the only time. How does he describe it? This is what he's describing in verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But what happened to these sacrifices? The bodies are burned outside the camp. So he's leading them on. This is what happened on the Day of Atonement. Now we have an altar the priest can't eat from at all. And part of that reason is Jesus is the true sacrifice that truly does what the Day of Atonement was supposed to do. Free us from sin. 
Free us from the power of sin and death. Because what does he go on to say? So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, city gate, like those sacrifices, also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. The writer's painting another picture. It's tough for us to get hold of. But again, for them, wow. Yeah, that's what it was like. But look, Jesus has come. It's different. It's so much better. And yet, look, it was always pointing towards it. It was always what God planned. Like so many of his pictures throughout the letter, you see the similarities. You see, look, God's continuous plan, what God has always been planning, and yet Jesus coming makes everything different. It's changed it all. And he's making the point, as he has all the way through as well, battling the temptation that his readers must have been facing from their fellow Jews to turn back, to turn away. The charges they must have been facing... You guys are abandoning the truth. You've left the temple. You've left the sacrificial system. You're not doing it anymore. You have abandoned God. He's saying, no, no, no. We have an altar. We have one. Not a physical one, a better one. And we have a priest, a great high priest who reigns forever. Not just a man who will have to be replaced when he dies, No, we have Jesus, the one who lives forever. And there's a sacrifice that's been made on that altar. Not one that has to be made every year, again and again. We don't have to bring another animal. We don't have to do it again. But actually, our high priest has offered himself once and for all to make the people holy through his own blood. He's making the point again, one last time. Do you see? Do you see? This is what God has always been planning. Your fellow Jews might say, you've abandoned the truth. You've left it, but you haven't. Jesus was always the one who was supposed to come. Jesus is the one who has made the perfect sacrifice. And so in leading us back here, the author wants us to remember two things. Even as we consider this list of exhortations, he wants us to to remember, firstly, remember the better hope that we have in Jesus. Remember the better hope we have. As he encourages us, be strengthened by grace. Understand, see what Jesus has done for you. He is the one who has saved us. If we're in Christ, we are new creations. We have been forgiven in him. If you're not saved today, if you don't know him, then you can know him. This is the truth that's summarized in in that very familiar verse in John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him may not die, but have eternal life. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the sacrifice that paid for everything. Jesus is the one who can set us free. That's his point here. It's only in him. There is no other ritual, no good deeds, no wealth of good behavior, no other system of sacrifices, nothing else that can save. 
It's only in Jesus. We could do nothing. That's what he's saying. Look, that's what the law and everything else actually eventually shows. We can't do it. We couldn't do it. But Jesus did. Jesus did, and so in him we can find forgiveness and salvation and life. His sacrifice has made us holy. He is all that matters. Whatever their Hebrew friends, or indeed whatever our friends might say, this is the truth. Jesus is the saviour. And he brings hope that goes beyond the grave. What does he go on to say? He tells us to let us then go with him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. But then he says this, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. He's making the point, look, we have an eternal hope. We have an eternal hope that goes beyond this life, that goes beyond this place where we live We have eternity with God in Christ. This is the hope that's in Christ. This is the truth that the writer has so labored to emphasize again and again and again. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you understand? This is the main point. Even as he encourages and exhorts us to live out the life, he's saying, remember the truth. Remember the hope that we have in him. But secondly, he also reminds us, encourage us to, us to remember that now we have life in him. Remember the great hope, the better hope that we have in Christ, but remember that now we live in him. We have life in him. This is who we are. We're alive in Christ. He uses this intriguing phrase, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Again, referring back to the fact Jesus rejected by men. Jesus, the one who took the sin and shame of the world on himself as he was, as he was killed outside the city. Outside, rejected, shunned. He makes the point for us, we are joined with him. For them, it was so clear They were leaving behind the Jewish customs, the community that they'd been a part of, the law that they had had tried to follow. It been so clear to others, it would have seemed like they were abandoning God. But he encourages them, look, you are joined with Christ. This is the truth. Yes, yes, there may be many who hate you. There may be many who persecute you. There may be many who don't understand. And yet, remember, you have life in Christ. You have true life. This is, this is true life in him and with him. Because we identify with him. He's not shying away from the fact that it may be hard. That's the way he describes it. Let us go out with him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. It may not be easy. It may involve persecution. It may involve people not understanding. It was so true for them. So obvious. We can look back and think it must have been so clear for them. It's it's almost the exact same situation. Jesus, rejected by his own people. Well, now... 
Jewish believers identifying with Jesus, again, rejected by their own people. Facing the same disgrace. So clear for them that they are facing that same journey outside of the camp, rejected by their fellow Hebrews, just like Jesus was. But for us still, in Christ, we are new creations. We are joined to Christ. We have new lives. See, that's the point he's making that following Jesus, belonging to him, being saved by him is not in any way some kind of bolt-on extra like a badge we can put on. Yes, well, I'm a, I'm a British man and I have a job and I have a relationship and I have this and I have that and this is my identity. Oh, and yes, I have a Jesus badge that I can stick on. I'm with Jesus as well. No. It's not like that. We're new creations in him. It transforms everything. Christianity can never be a bolted-on extra. Okay, yes, I'll just go to church as well. That's not what it's about. What he's saying here, you've identified with him. You're with him. This is life. This is real life. This is true life in all its fullness. It's with him as he lives in you and transforms you. As he puts it, we're waiting for the city that's yet to come. What he's alluding to, we're citizens of a different kingdom. We have been changed. We're being transformed. So the second reminder is that salvation changes everything. Changes our lives. It affects every area of our lives. It must. Because Jesus is at work in us. As we go out to him, outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, living for that eternal kingdom that is, that is here, but is still yet to come. Remember the great hope that we have in Jesus. And remember that we have life in him. You see, threaded through even all these exhortations in this chapter, is the truth that draws us to action. The reality that we are in Christ, that he is transforming us, that he is at work, that we're living for him. That we are in him, we're being made like him, we're following him, we're securing him, and it's all about him. Remember the great hope, and remember that we live in him. And therefore, therefore we're encouraged. Therefore we're encouraged to run the race with perseverance. He's already said it in chapter 12. We're encouraged to live out our salvation with fear and trembling. To live the life. To run the race. As he said in verse 9, be strengthened by grace. And as he said just before that, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Don't be swayed. Don't be fooled. Cling on to the truth. No it's him who's at work in you. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, so let's live it out. Let's see him transform us from the inside out. And therefore, let's see what he's describing here. Not as a list of rules. There's 11 exhortations, as I've said. But this is a description of life in Christ. This is a description of what God does inside us. This is, how, this is a description of what happens as he makes us more like him. This is what happens. 
This is what we're to do. This is not so much a list of rules as a description of what is in our DNA. 11 exhortations that speak into our relationships with each other, our relationships to strangers, our relationship to those in need, those who are downtrodden and mistreated, those in prison, our relationship towards uh, sexual intimacy and towards the relationship of marriage, our relationship to money, our relationship to leaders who have gone before us, our relationship to God, our relationship to everyone around us, our relationship to our leaders at the moment. And as he concludes, he puts our relationship to, to those, uh, to, well, as he's putting it, his relationship to them, the ones who are writing the letter and sending it, but our relationship to those who maybe are far off, our relationship to those who are teaching us. All of this is affected. Indeed, all of this is governed by God's work in our lives and who we are in Christ. All these actions, all these relationships, they flow out of relationship with him. As we become more like Jesus, this is who we are. And therefore, how we relate with each other, with money, with leadership, with whatever. So he's not setting out a list of rules, but he's encouraging, exhorting, urging them, and urging us, live it out. Keep going with God. Keep running the race. To be the new creations that Christ has made us to be. It's a beautiful description of a people living together for God. As I said at the beginning, we could spend months looking at... We're not going to. We could spend months looking at each individual one. What does it mean to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters? How do we do that? What does that mean for us in our lives? As I said today, I I want us to see this as a whole. See, this, this this is the work of God in our lives. And so in, in closing, I want, to, I want to read it again in that light. To read through this, this great picture of living for God. So starting again at verse 1. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. We're a family. With God's family brought together in Christ. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And as I said, we could probably spend weeks looking at exactly what he's talking about. Angels? They've entertained angels? But what's, what's the point here? This is God's heart for those outside. Coming out, this is the church looking outwards. And we're not just, we don't just love one another, but to strangers, to those who are far off, to everyone. This is God's heart of compassion and hospitality being worked out. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who were ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. God's heart is always for the poor and the downtrodden, the mistreated, those who, are, those who have been uh, ill-treated. And that's to be our heart as well as he works in us. Remember them as if you were there with them. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. What an area where it's so easy to stumble. Sexual intimacy, relationships. Sex can be held up as such a God in our culture, or in many cultures. 
It's all about what relationship you have. It's all about uh, gratifying your, uh, what, you, what your body wants. It's all about that. No, it's not about that. Let's have God's heart for purity and for this glorious picture of marriage as Christ and the church. It's what it's about. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. In this, and in terms of sexual intimacy, in fact, in terms of all of this, he goes on to show us, keep yourself free from the love of money. Why? Because you can't find satisfaction in that. You can't find contentment in having enough or not having too much or whatever it might be. You can only find contentment and satisfaction and life in him. What does he say? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. This is God. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So we're encouraged to be free from the love of money because God is so much better. We can't serve God and money, yes, we've heard in recent weeks. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And as he, he looks at that, he's, he's looking back towards maybe leaders who have gone before. Those perhaps who have died for their faith. Those perhaps who are not with them anymore. Similar to his great... Uh, Encouragement in chapter 11, remember them and their faith. Remember, look, this is what God did through them. Well, Jesus hasn't changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember what they taught. Remember their faith. He goes on in verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. He started in verse 9, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. He's saying, hold on to the truth. Hold on to God. Come to him. He's the one who is true. And therefore, through Jesus, always praise. Always out of gratitude and thankfulness, come and praise him. Have confidence in your leaders. Oh, forgot one. Don't forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Again, encouraging God's heart of compassion and generosity to flow out from us. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that the work, their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Again, the encouragement's still there. We're a family together. Yes, God puts... Uh, Appoint some as leaders. But we're brothers and sisters together. We're not jostling for position. We're not seeking our own advancement. He paints a great picture of leaders loving the people and people respecting the leaders. And this being of mutual benefit. And he finishes, pray for us. We're sure we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now, in one sense, 
We perhaps can't pray for the author in the same way that those receiving the original letter could. But nevertheless, we can be a people of prayer. A people who pray for those amongst us who are in difficult situations. Or perhaps, taking up the context, those who are far away. Perhaps out of sight. But let's not let them be out of mind. Perhaps even thinking in our own context. You may be familiar with these names, you may not. Those who have been sent to other places. You think of Joy and Nathan Turner, or Jeremy and Ann Simpkins when they're, when they're away, or Gail, or Tim and Becky Davis, or the Rushworth family, or Gemma Booth, or Dave and Rabina Cousins, and many others. You may be familiar with the names, you might not. But the point is this, we want to be a people who are praying for one another, for those who are far off, for those who are here. And I can ask, pray for us as leaders, pray for us as a church. Pray for one another as friends. See, that's very brief. I apologize that it's very brief. But this is a great picture. This is life in the Spirit. This is life in Christ, described as outworked. This is following Him, seeing His work in our hearts, outworked in our lives. In a sense, this is who we are. It's not a list of rules that applies pressure. Well, this is what you should be doing. Pressure or despair, knowing I'm really bad at that. Should I be better? No, it's a a picture of, look, this is what God does in us. And so actually our encouragement is actually, if we look at areas and go, actually, I find that really tough. Our encouragement is keep coming back to him and asking him, Lord, give me more of your spirit. Give me more of your spirit and help me that I may be more like you. That I may be more like you and may follow you more closely. Because, as I said, we could spend months here. How do we love one another as brothers and sisters? How do we show hospitality to strangers? How do we honour marriage rightly? How do, we, how do we keep our lives free from the love of money? What's the right relationship between leaders uh, between us and our leaders. But that's not his main point. His main point is this. Something far better has come, and it is Jesus. We have new life in him. We get to follow him. We get to live for him. And he lives in us to make us more like him. And therefore, this is the outworking of it. He's our saviour, he's our king, he's our friend. If we're in Christ, we are new creations. It changes everything. So the encouragement is this. Let's keep running the race. Let's keep drawing close to him. As, As he said in chapter 12, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the answer. Keep fixing our eyes on him. Keep being filled with his spirit. Keep asking him, Lord, help me to be more like you. Because it's only in his strength. It's only in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do it. But he has done it. He's won for us salvation and a life with him. Let's keep running the race. It may be costly. As it says, we join him outside the camp, bearing the shame that he bore. It certainly was for them, leaving their 
Jewish brothers and sisters. But knowing the truth, this is, this is the real deal. Jesus is the Messiah. And he is worth it. He is worth it. He is worth everything. And he's leading us on to a heavenly city where we will be with him forever. Amen.